you can, uh, you can open. Ernie reminded me after the sermon last Sunday, I never told you what we were supposed to turn to to read from. I just figured, you know, it's been six months. I figured you know where we are. But uh, we're starting in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians this morning. So you can turn there. Now, originally, as I started uh, studying, I, often I kind of haven't mapped out. And often that doesn't happen the way that I planned. And this is one of those texts. I was going to read all the way to, uh, to 22, and then I got to 13 and remembered something about 13. And then when I started kind of studying and mapping it out, writing my notes and stuff, I went, that's as far as we're going to make it. So we have two very big rabbit holes that we're going to go down this morning. But uh, one of them, I think, is very, very important for our theology, for our understanding of the context of, of this verse and how it's so easily misused. Uh, and, and misunderstood. And then the other one, I think, is just a, a helpful rabbit hole. And, and we want to make sure we give opportunity to explore things that are helpful for our understanding of Scripture. Uh, so where we have been since chapter 8, right? Chapter 8, we started with this new idea in, in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul starts to talk about meat sacrifice to idols and dealing with what's an idol, um, does it have any power, does it have any authority, should you be able to eat, should you not be able to eat, and he starts off in that chapter 8 with this idea of, okay, technically you're right, that idol has no authority over you, and so you have the freedom to eat all you want, however, and then for the last half of 8, all of chapter 9, and, and continuing into chapter 10 here, he's focused on what? Just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Who's been told that by your parents growing up, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and more than that, Paul goes as far as saying, the problem is that you're so focused, you Corinthians, and, and perhaps we could read that for us too, you Bamfites, I don't know. What's a Banff person called? Bamfites, that's good. Okay, we're, I got the, I got the, the nod. Um, we're, we're no different in this. All of us struggle with this idea of self. We want what we want because we want it, and we think we deserve it. And, and Paul argues with them saying, look, you're so concerned about what you think your rights are that you've forgotten the whole purpose. Your role as a, as a brother and sister in Christ is to minister to, to care for, and to help mature. Your role is to disciple one another. And others come into uh, this, this movement of Christianity, and, and they don't understand a lot of things yet. They're very immature in their faith. And Paul says, you've got to be concerned far more about them and their spiritual growth. And if you have to let down things that you think you should be able to do or have the rights to do, if you can let those aside for the greater good of your brother or your sister, that's what's most important. That's what you should be doing. And he's spent a lot of time, and we've spent a lot of time as we've gone through this, clarifying that over and over. And Paul's not saying that, you know, we don't have rights or that we shouldn't have rights, or even a lot of those rights are good and come from good places and have good principles behind them. He's saying if your focus is on your rights instead of, or, or maybe say it this way, at the cost of somebody else, then, then you're wrong, right? You can be right and still be wrong in that sense. And that's what Paul has been arguing about. And so now we come to chapter 10 where he gets into uh, another warning about an issue with this. And, and 
in my intro, which I wrote before I actually got through everything I said. And now we start to talk about meat sacrifice to idols. We won't. We're going to get there next week. But he's going to start talking about it not from a sense of relationship anymore, but actually from an idolatry standpoint. And if you have been reading through the Old Testament at all, our, our men's group, we just finished up the book of Judges uh, recently here. Man, idolatry is just a huge, huge problem. And, and not just for them, then. Idolatry is a huge problem for us. Uh, Tim Keller talks about idolatry as anything that takes the place of Jesus in your heart becomes an idol. And so you can fill in the blank with all kinds of stuff. It doesn't have to be, uh, though he's going to talk about, in, in chapter 10 here, he's going to talk about some of the history of the Israelites where they you know, made a golden calf and they fell down and they worshiped, and that's very clearly idolatry. Well, in our culture, maybe it's things a little more subtle like materialism, like our bank account, like, you know, you can fill in the blank with all kinds of things. Anything that takes our focus off of Christ onto that thing, and we start to think, man, I, I need that thing. That one thing, that will make me happy. That will give me purpose. That will give me fulfillment. Usually what ends up happening, it gives you guilt and it gives you shame and it gives you a sense of emptiness. It helps for a short time and then it makes it worse than it ever was. And so here, Paul's going to start clarifying uh, some of this. And I just tell you that just so that we're reminded of where we are at, but also we're going to look at some history here and, and it's, it's quite interesting because, I'm giving a little bit away before I even read it, but because, remember, we're in Corinth here. Okay, we're not, but you know what I mean. Hypothetically, we're, we're reading. This church in Corinth is compromised primarily of whom? Greeks, not Jewish people. And Paul's going to go back to Jewish history to teach the Greeks some things about the Jewish history, and I just find that really interesting. And I'm going to explain why in a moment. But let's read this together. So chapter 10, have I said that enough times? Chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Let's read this together. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you Sorry, let's try that again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, a little bit of history, right, from Exodus, from Numbers, from Psalms, uh, and we're not really going to go back in and deal with uh, those specific examples. We're just going to talk about them in a more generic sense this morning. 
But I want to highlight this idea of Paul using the Jewish history to speak to the Greeks. Because I think this is huge. This is, this is primary concern of Paul. Not just in Corinth, in Rome, in the book of Acts we see this. Primarily every other letter that Paul writes we see this. For I want you to know, what is the next word? Verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers. He's making a point. You are now into our family. I could have talked about this last week, but I just ran out of time because I guess I'm long-winded. But in verses 19 to 23, Paul starts to talk. uh, He clarifies something about his Jewish heritage in a sense that that is no longer a defining mark for him. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not trying to claim he is not Jewish. He talks about his Jewishness lots throughout Scripture. But it no longer becomes a primary identifier because that's what it was for him in the beginning. Right? As a Pharisee, it was, this is my lineage. This is who I belong to. Look, I have all the qualifications that I need because of my heritage. But, but that starts to shift as Gentiles come into the church. And Paul's concern for unity is one of the biggest concerns that he has in all of his writings that Jews and Gentiles would come together and that Gentiles would not be like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the family, but I'm not really the same as, as the Jews. Or, or rather for the Jews to not think that because you are Jewish in your heritage that somehow that gives you a leg up on. Just read through the book of Romans. Paul clarifies so many times that you are one family. So, so in, in a sense, scholars, this... This term that scholars kept using kept popping up in my study this week, that the church is the true Israel. He's trying, now, now again, I'm not, I think Israel has a play to part yet as a nation. I do. And we'll talk about that very briefly in a moment. But Paul's concern here is that he is lumping the Old Testament Jewish nation with the New Testament church and saying, you are the same family. Gentiles, you've been adopted into God's family. He has chosen you to be part of this family. Brothers, brothers. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Peter calls the church a royal priesthood. We are all one together as Christ's ambassadors. For Paul, this idea of being a Jew is no longer his... uh, primary identifier. And the reason that I say this is this has popped up a number of times in some conversations that I've had recently. Is our culture, over the last number of years, we've found certain things, generically speaking, that have become very crucial in our identification of who we are as people. Maybe uh, you can remember back a few years, and maybe this is true still for you or or the circles that you run in, but what you did became your identifier, what your career was, what your job was. When somebody asks, oh, who are you? You immediately would tell them what you do because that's where we found identity and purpose. In today's world, what we're finding is sexuality is becoming the primary identifier. Who are you? Well, I am, and we start to label ourselves in certain ways. Well, for us, our identity, and Paul's been trying to get the Corinthians to understand this throughout this whole book, is our identity is that we're a son or a daughter of the king. That's our primary identity. 
There's lots of other things that contribute to that identity, but none of them should become primary over this. And this is what Paul's saying, Peter saying, you are a royal priesthood. We are a family of believers. So Paul calls them brothers. Now, notice the examples that Paul uses, right? So he says, our fathers. Now again, right, in case you think I'm dwelling too hard on our calling them brothers, he also says our fathers, which is, is not, right? They're not primarily Jewish people, but he's calling them our fathers. We're all under the cloud. We all pass through the sea. We're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, right? So he's using now some of these metaphors, and I think this is really, really interesting. Paul's referencing the cloud in the sense of it's the very presence of God that led the people of Israel, both on the mountain and then the pillar of cloud that led them by day when they moved. The sea, of course, right, is the Red Sea that they passed through together. But this interesting use of baptized into Moses, that should kind of like stand out when you read that. You'd be like, what do you, what do you mean, Paul? What is this? What is this about? So Donald Pryor helped me by explaining it this way. He said, to be baptized into Moses meant that they were voluntarily and unconditionally placing themselves under the leadership of Moses. Paul's very striking but unusual language in this passage emphasizes the parallels between the privileges of God's people under Moses and the privileges of God's people under Jesus. Paul is starting to make this connection But the warning throughout the whole passage is is simply this. The Jewish people relied on their Jewish heritage as what would save them so often in the Bible. And it, well, he uses these examples very clearly to point out that that's not the case. Now with the Corinthians, he's been saying over and over, your arrogance, your own, the knowledge you think you possess is is actually going to cause you some of the same problems. Is you think that you're good but you're missing out on a whole bunch of things. And so the warning continues here. Now, this type of, of, of imagery that Paul's using, it, it, it's called a type. Uh, we use the biblical term uh, typification, right? I'll read to you what that means. Um, a type is an Old Testament event or, or person that foreshadows a spiritual reality revealed in the New Testament. I want to read that again just so you get that. A type is an Old Testament event or person that foreshadows a spiritual reality revealed in the New Testament. Richard Pratt says, uh, sufficient continuity existed between the Old Covenant people of God in the Old Testament, that's Israel, and in the New Testament, the church, that the Old Testament Israelites were the spiritual forefathers of all New Testament believers. He's making this connection that is just It's incredible when you really start to think about it because of how much division existed between all these different nations. And Paul's trying to say, none of that should be true. You, you as a a Gentile person, and the majority of us in this room would probably be in that camp, we should be able to read the Old Testament, see that, and see the parallels that are being drawn where we are no different, but we're in fact part of that same family now under the grace and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So these these types, these uh, examples in the Old Testament, they're ways for us that as we read to see 
what is coming. And of course, we know, we've already read, many of us have read the New Testament. And so when we look back, we see it with kind of different, uh, a different lens because we go, oh, this reminds me of. And that's the point. That's what it's meant to do. One of my teachers in Bible college used to say it this way, if you don't see Jesus when you read the Old Testament, you're reading it wrong. Right? That's where it's all leading towards. Uh, the Bible project, they, they say it this way often, is that all of Scripture is one unified story leading to Jesus. Right? Everything points there. The Old Testament is not some kind of irrelevant idea. It's something for us to see in history and points to future realities that we experience now as to who we are as God's people. So notice now some of the other ones. He says, we, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Now he clarifies the drink, but what's the spiritual food? Anybody remember? 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they never really had to worry about food because what happened? They just, they just walked out their tent and it was there, right? And so there's, there's a physical sense of God was nourishing and providing for them, but more importantly is the spiritual food is, look, God is providing for you. All drank of the same spiritual drink. Now, now here he clarifies, and this is where our first rabbit hole is going to be. For they drank from the spiritual rock. Now this is where translation matters or is helpful, let me say it that way, is the ESV capitalizes that word rock for us. does a little bit of work for us so that we see something significant here. A lot of the other translations don't. But then the good part is that it clarifies, and that rock was Christ. So in, uh, I remember this distinctly when I was in Bible college, and actually in June, assuming everything moves ahead, right? Because we just never know in the world that we find ourselves in. I have a seminary class in Genesis with the same professor that taught me Genesis for Bible college. And this is one of his big, big, maybe it was a rabbit hole for him too. I don't know. But something that he was very, very passionate about was this understanding of the Messiah is all through the pages of Genesis. And when we start to see it right, we start to read it right, and we start to experience this we start to experience Jesus in a far more full way. So what he would explain often is at the beginning of the wilderness journey, you see this moment where the people are crying out, we have no water to drink. And, and as they do over and over and over, they start to argue with Moses and say, man, Egypt was nice. Remember when we were slaves in Egypt and everything was awesome? It's like, what? Like they've forgotten so fast as soon as there's some, some suffering or some... Uh, confusion, uncertainty. Anyway, we wish we were back in Egypt and Moses goes, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do with these people? And God says what? Go to the rock. Strike the rock. And what happens? Rock splits and all this water comes out. Right. So again, you can kind of see where we're going. But then at the second time, at the end of the wilderness journey, the same situation happens, only what was Moses supposed to do this time? speak to the rock. He was not supposed to strike it this time. He did not listen to what God said. He struck the rock. And for that disobedience, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. So what my professor and, and all these commentaries that I was reading all this week, what they're showing is that this is example leading to the Messiah, right? That he was struck down for us, that he had to be broken. But then, he rose again. And so when Moses was to speak to the rock, it was this typification, this signifying event that he didn't have to kill it. 
again, whether there was a lie. Right? So just these moments where like, I would have never thought to read it like that. And I think that's kind of the point, right? Is God's writing Genesis going, oh, don't worry, I got some stuff in store. I have a plan here, and I'm just, I'm just showing you little snippets so that when you do experience the realities, when you read Corinthians and you see they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, we start to go, oh, I, I see some things here. Rabbit hole over. Okay, first one's done. So spiritual food, spiritual drink, what, what is this pointing us towards now? Well, we're going to do it in a few minutes. What is it? Communion, right? It's the same, same type of idea here for us is that when we gather together, we're going to eat a little bit of a cracker, bread, right? Whatever the tradition is, we're going to drink a little bit of that drink. And all of it is reminding us to point back to the fact that Jesus did die on the cross for us that he rose again. Because we, just like the children of Israel, forget very quickly and very easily. And we need to be reminded of it. Many, many commentators focus on the reality of the Sabbath as being that exact reason because we daily, in a cycle of life, need to slow down and be reminded of who is in charge, who is at work in our life, what he is doing. We get busy, we get forgetful, we focus on our difficulties and our struggles, and we forget so quickly the goodness of God, the grace and the mercy. And so while much has changed in the last few thousand years, not much has changed at the same time. Now, verse 5, warning. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased as they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, that's like the understatement of the year. How many people of all of that nation? Two, right? Joshua and Caleb, that's it. Everyone else died in the wilderness, including Moses, for the seemingly, right? I remember thinking, man, he just struck the rock. Like, that's not that big of a deal. And then when you read this and you go, oh, well, hang on. There's significance here. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So what is he saying? Corinthians, and he's going to clarify this in chapter 11, right? In two weeks when we get there, is, is clarifying the way in which they were taking communion was completely perverse. They were missing the entire point of everything. Is he saying the same thing here? Look, they had the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. They were baptized into Moses. They had all of these things, and yet they missed it all. So Corinthians, pay attention. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for who? This is one of the biggest verses. This in verse 11 in all of the New Testament, in my opinion. These things took place as examples for us. Now, you could argue that Paul's talking directly to the Corinthians in that culture, but I think we don't have to argue very hard about that. All of the Old Testament is written so that we would see who God is, and ultimately so that we would understand as we watch the mistakes that they make and the disbelief and, and the idolatry and the sexual immorality and all those things so that we would not make those same mistakes. Yet I would argue we haven't done a very good job of that. We all still continue to struggle. Okay, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire as evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he goes through some of these explanations. 
I want to read to you, this is a, a lengthy quote, but I think it just really, really, um, it really helps us kind of understand in a really clear way. I forgot who wrote this, now I can't find it. it we'll call it the guy. He wrote this. He says, Paul is clearly comparing the presumptuous attitude of God's people under Moses to the arrogance of certain Corinthians Christians in his own day. They too had been through the waters of baptism with all the deep significance this carried for allegiance to Jesus as Lord. They too were involved in regular communion meals during which they were both physically and spiritually nourished. These Christians, like God's people under Moses, were on the receiving end of great blessings. But to receive blessings is by no means the same as to enter the privilege and responsibilities of blessing. They had become so absorbed with their rights, they were now presuming on the efficacy of that relationship with the Lord. After all we've been through, like I, I could have just read that like six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, and then we could have just, no, I'm just kidding. We shouldn't have skipped anything. But it's just so beautifully put. Is so often we get consumed with our rights, our desires, that now we presume that we're good because of. Again, you can fill in the blanks. And how many traditions, how many denominations exist where it's like, as long as you do this or say this, you're fine. Throughout this book, Paul's been calling on their arrogance, their assumptions that they already knew everything that they needed to know. And Paul's saying, look, look what happened in the past. You're not immune to those same issues that they face now. Richard Pratt writes, not all people who profess faith in Christ and partake of baptism and the Lord's Supper have saving faith. That's the point. I don't want you to think here that as we're reading through this that we're talking somehow about losing your salvation because that's not it at all. And when you read through the book of Hebrews, what you see over and over and over is, is it's never this idea of losing one's salvation, but questioning have you actually made Christ the Lord of your life? Or have you just claimed him? Right? Like, and again, certain traditions say certain things, right? If you pray this prayer after me, then you're good. Right? Like, maybe that's not the way we mean it, but sometimes that's how it comes across. And somebody goes, man, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to pray this prayer so that I'm good. And that's not really the point. The point is making Christ the Lord of your life. And Paul says, right, you, you're a new creation. Your, your mind has been transformed, renewed. We've read all these things in the last number of weeks here. I just want to clarify this. We're not talking about losing salvation. Paul's not saying to the Corinthians, you know what, you're in danger of losing. He's saying you're in danger of thinking that you're a Christian when your actions are proven that you actually aren't. You maybe intellectually understand what it means to be a Christian, but you better be very careful to understand that how you live, what you do, it's indication of what you believe in your heart, the decisions that you have made. So then he gives these examples, right? Here, here's some significant things. Idolatry, it happened, and many of them were killed. Sexual morality came into the camp, and, and thousands of them were killed. They were, and then we, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Now notice again, who does he say they put to test? Christ. He doesn't say the Father. 
though he could have. Right? So we're seeing what Paul's trying to break down, that there is, there is a communion that takes place here between the Old Testament saints and the New. Because of Jesus, because that was always the plan. Verse 11, now these things happened, this is the other important verse, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Right? Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is what? All of it's breathed out by God. All of it is useful for our correction, for our rebuke, for our training, so that we might become men and women who honor God with the way that we live because we know who God is. All of it matters. And I think so often we look back on difficult Old Testament passages and texts and we go, man, I just don't really understand some of that. It's a little bit confusing. And so we just kind of ignore it and we go, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. And we're never going to understand Jesus the way that we should if we don't understand the Old Testament. The whole book exists for us, for our reproof, our correction, for our training in righteousness. Why? So that we might be equipped to do good works. And as we looked at in our men's ministry this last week, those good works God actually prepared for us before we were even created. God has purpose and means for us. We have the responsibility to read and understand. And Paul says, do not forget these things happen to them, but if you're not careful, they're going to happen to you too. Now, if you grew up with older siblings, this is probably something that you've seen. Right? Mom and dad plead with you, look what happened to them. Look what, look what they did. Look at the consequences. Please don't make that same mistake. And we go, you know, sometimes we maybe look at that and go, I'm never going to do that. I don't, and then what do we do? Yeah, we do it. Right? A year later, two years later, three years. Maybe, maybe, maybe we do it a lot sooner. Right? Is we as people, uh, there's no nice way to say this. And I mean this with the most kindness I can. We're not very bright as people. Right? We make the same mistakes over and over and over because we have this sinful nature that we fight with every single day. Praise the Lord that if we're in Christ, that we have been given the Holy Spirit so we don't have to submit to our sinful pleasures and our desires any longer. That's what Paul's trying to remind them of here. Be prepared and be aware. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Kind of the reminder of what he said a couple of weeks ago. If you think you know what you think you know, you don't really know what you think you know. Again, I said that all wrong because I don't really know how to say it. But that same idea, right, is be careful. If you think you stand strong in your own arrogance, you're actually going to crumble and fall down in that own arrogance and you're going to be surprised and everyone else is going to be like, I told you. Paul is saying, do not do not think that you are just good, that everything is fine, that somehow your life is just going to be smooth sailing. Take heed, lest you fall. Then verse 13, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here because I think, I think this is just one of the most poorly understand, understood verses in Scripture and most misused verses in Scripture. A number of years ago, I did a, a sermon series about six or seven weeks on very specific verses that are misused all the time. And this was the number one uh, that was in my mind. And this is the one that I continually see and hear people saying over and over and over again. So let me read it first. Let's read verse 12 again because verse 12 is the warning 
And then 13 is the clarification of that warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation. Now, we've got to realize the context where this verse falls, what Paul is saying about it, because the thing that often is said is taking it out of context and actually makes it say something that it doesn't intentionally say, and it's horrible biblical theology. You've probably heard this. We've, pro- we've probably all said it at some point. Is we read something like that, and then we see a situation where somebody we know goes through a very difficult situation. They, they get cancer. And we say, you know what, don't worry. God has told you that he will not give you more than you can handle. So you're good. Totally unbiblical theology. What are we talking about here? Temptation. Sin. Arrogance. Right? He's saying, look, no temptation has overtaken that is not common to man. All of us struggle in these same things. But God is faithful. He's not going to lead you into a situation where your only option is sin. He will not. He will provide the way of escape so that we can stand up under it. That's very different than the conditional situation that you find yourself in and the strength that you have. Those are two very different things. And so for us to look at this and go, you know what, God wouldn't, God wouldn't do that to you unless you could handle it. Who's the main character in our story then? Me and my own strength. Man, God knew that I was strong enough to deal with this. So that's why he gave it to me. I I think what the Bible teaches us is different. I think what the Bible teaches us is that God takes us to the end of ourselves so that we see how desperately we need him. Because I can't do it on my own. And we all know this. We have been in situations in our life where we have said, I do not know how I'm going to get through this. I don't understand what's happening. I don't know how I'm going to be able to deal with this grief or this hurt or this pain or this situation. And then somebody comes along beside us. They say, don't worry, God wouldn't do it unless you could get through it. That's not what this verse says. In fact, Paul's been arguing over and over and over, uh, and, and much of Scripture argues that a lot of the reality of the situation that happens to us is so that we go, I can't do it, I need Savior. And we cry out and we let God be the lead. We let him direct us. We let him show us. It it may sound subtle, but I think it's so dangerous because all of a sudden the hero of our story doesn't, it's not Jesus anymore, it's us. And that's so dangerous. If I didn't need Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have sacrificed himself on the cross. If I desperately didn't need the Holy Spirit to transform me and to help me and fight that sin nature because I am prone to wander and as the old hymn says, I'm prone to leave the God I love because that's what's in me, I need God. And in our own arrogance and in our own thinking that we've got everything under control, God often takes us to a place where we can't get through until we surrender and we give up and we say, I am not in control. I cannot do it. I need you. Again, that's not what this verse is about. Paul's just warned them. 
Don't stand on your own arrogance. Look back and realize what happens when you give into idolatry or sexual immorality or all these things is many people who thought they were in good, healthy relationship with God were not because they, they didn't care about honoring and serving God. They cared about their own self. And so he warns them and he says, so let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But then he clarifies, but don't worry, God is not going to make you sin. God is not going to take you to a place where the only option in front of you is, well, I guess I'm just going to give in to my own sinful nature here because other, you know, history has taught me this is just what people do. Paul says, no. God is faithful. Implication, we're not. Right? We're unfaithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Our ability our ability to turn to the Holy Spirit and say, help me through this. Take me out of this, right? And, and, and there's two different things that are said. So he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That sounds like two very different things, doesn't it? Escape and endure are very different. One is run away from it. And we actually see that, and we're going to see that next week, and we've seen it already. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. We're told to run away from some of these things. A lot of other times like Paul, where he pleads with God to remove this thorn from the flesh, right? He pleads, God, take it away from me. What does God say? My grace is sufficient. It won't be taken away, but you'll be able to endure it. Right? So God gives him the strength that he needs to endure it. Notice who gives him the strength that he needs to endure it. Okay, I think we've spent enough time there. I think you get it. Um, Sorry, that's just that's my that's probably my most frustrating verse to clarify because it 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 sounds so close, but it takes the gospel and it turns it completely around. The gospel, right? I say it all the time. It's for us, but it's not about us. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes it this way: For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? When I'm weak then I am strong. Realizing just how desperately we need God is actually a wonderful gift. It's a painful one. It's one that we probably don't want to learn very often, but how often do we need to learn it? Richard Pratt wrote, Paul shows from the history of the people of God that the enjoyment of high privilege does not guarantee final blessing." And so for us, when we look back, just because you were raised in a Christian home, that doesn't mean that everything's good. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Just because it seems like we've been giving all, given all these blessings doesn't mean that we should just assume that that's the way things are always going to be. We're promised hardship, we're promised persecution, we're promised pain but we're promised that God will be with us in the midst of all of that. Right? Again, this is why I get so aggressive towards the health, wealth, prosperity gospels because that teaches something that the scripture doesn't teach. Man, if you come to faith in Jesus, then all of your problems will be gone. Anybody? No problems here, right? Like I think every day we wake up, it's like, oh, here's a problem. Right? If you're a parent man, I've got I to gotta be more patient today than I was yesterday. If you're a spouse, I've got to be more 
sacrificial than I was yesterday. Is these things are things that we have to go through all the time. We are constantly bombarded with challenges, difficulties, obstacles. Yet all of those things are opportunities for us to grow in our Christ-likeness, to grow in our faith, to grow in our strength. And it's so easy to rely on our own strength, even though our own strength really lets us down a lot of times. God doesn't. And so in the same way here, as we finish this section, as we just, you can just flip the page depending on your translations here and how much text you have written, uh, a page or two, to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23. And, and we're going to clarify this one in a couple of weeks all the much more, and we're going to start to see why Paul was so harsh uh, with them. But these reminders for us, look, look back to the Old Testament. Be warned. Be aware. Look what they did and look when, when they allowed sin into their camp and when they got complacent and started to think sexual morality was okay and, and idolatry was not a big deal. Look, how, look at the huge consequences that happened. We need to be reminded often. And I think, man, I don't, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but more now than ever, <laughs> is you open up, social media and you just want to like scratch your eyes out right now right like there's just so much conflict so much fighting so many you know well this is the end of the world the covid's the antichrist and everyone's getting so focused on all of these conspiracies and we're fighting and we're just you know what maybe it is the end i don't know not smart enough to know that what i do know is that at every point in every generation there's challenges and there's obstacles that we have to choose as christians how are we going to respond to this and am I going to look back to the grace and the mercy of Jesus and am I going to rely on his strength to get through the situation that's in front of me because frankly, I can't do it. Right? How many times have we woken up in the morning going, I don't have the strength to get through this day. And then yet somehow we ended up back on that same pillow later that night. Right? God is at work. He's merciful. We need to be reminded of him. And so this morning is, as we read this, I want us to recognize there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of challenge in our world. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of things I'm not smart enough to know. I don't want to say you're not smart enough to know, but that's probably true too, right? It's like we, we don't know everything. And so we need to be reminded that we have a Savior who loves us and who has promised that he will be with us. And he's, his death and resurrection, that is what has saved us and given us purpose and meaning for every day that we have. And he will walk through it. And we need to be reminded that Jesus promised, I'm coming again. And I don't know when that's going to be, right? I don't know if that's tomorrow or in 100 years from now. I don't. But the promise is there. And so I need to be reminding myself of that daily. I need to be reminding myself of that so often. And so once a month seems like the least that we can do to come together, to hold the bread and the cup in our hands and remind ourselves, right, like I said a couple of weeks ago, preach the gospel to ourselves. I'm in desperate need of Jesus because I don't even understand what's going on in my own mind, let alone a very complicated world. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 23. And let's be reminded that we have a Savior who is with us 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Perhaps now these verses will have a little bit more meaning, even though we haven't gotten into the specifics of it yet. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice the context of unity within that, the body. This is not just about me, this is about us together. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to spend a couple of moments here in prayer. Uh, and if you, if you weren't able to grab the communion stuff at the back, just behind the camera there when you came in, feel free to go grab it um, while we're praying. And then come back and, and we'll take these elements together. But I just want to spend these moments preparing us and, and having us ready for, for the truth of what we've read already, but, but making it more internal in our hearts. So let's pray. God, as we think in our own minds of all the challenges and difficulties and, and the daily struggles that we have and the things that distract us from focusing on you, God, we confess that there are a lot. There are a lot of things that distract us from you. And God, in thinking of the Old Testament people who lost focus of you, it always led to this idolatrous heart. And God, I pray that we would see these warnings in Scripture written, as, as Paul has said, that happened to them but are written for us so that we might not have the same evil in our hearts. God, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to be reminded of your mercy and your grace and your love. We need to be reminded that our rights, our individual rights, should never come at the expense of the body, at the expense of our brothers and sisters, or at the cost of them. God, the gospel is not just for me. The gospel is for all of us, because you love each of us desperately and want us to be in relationship with you. So God, as we take just these moments to consider our own hearts, and as the scripture says here, that we would examine our own hearts and, and in the same way that David prayed, search me. Search me and know if there's any grievous way in me. God, would we confess the things that need to be confessed? Would we deal with the hurt and the pain, the frustration, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, whatever is in our hearts? Would we repent of those things and, and would we remind ourselves that because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and that he rose again, that we do not stand condemned, even though that's what we deserve. But that we have hope 
that we know that you are walking along beside us through the, through the difficulties, through the storms, through the challenges. That your mercy is new for us every single morning. And so God, for those here this morning that woke up feeling overwhelmed, as we sang, overwhelmed by the weight of our sin, overwhelmed by perhaps the implications of other people's sins on us and what it's done in our hearts. God, I pray that we would recognize that your mercy is there for us and that you will help us through this day, through this week, through this season of life that we find ourselves in. God, may we trust you more and more every day. And may we, as the corporate body of Christ, love one another unconditionally, care for one another, build each other up, help each other, so that we might see your goodness and your mercy. So God, as we think of your body that was broken for us, The reminder there is simply that we desperately needed a Savior. That we could not pay the penalty. The debt was, was too great for us. And yet we have a Savior who did exactly what we could not. So God, as we hold the bread in our hands and as we are about to eat it together. May we not become like the Israelites in Exodus who started to get so angry with this spiritual food that they just pleaded, give us meat, give us meat. And, and in the same way, the Corinthians now, we see that. Give, God, help us to recognize that what you have given us is, is that's all that we need. Help us to not search beyond that. So God, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross, that he died, that his body was broken for us so that we might be forgiven. So let's eat in remembrance of him. God, as we also consider the cup that we hold in our hands and the representation of it for us, that this is your blood, that only your blood could forgive our sins. God, as, as we go back in the Old Testament, as we read, as we look at the sacrificial system, uh, may those types, those things that we see that are fulfilled in the new covenant of Jesus' blood, these things that were pointing towards something, may we remember the grace and the mercy that we do not have to sacrifice for our sins because you sacrificed yourself once for all. God, help us to never presume that, that we're fine, that we're good. May we 
constantly go back to you with grateful hearts, with thankful hearts, recognizing the mercy and the grace that you have given to us. And the only reason that that is so readily available to us is the blood of Jesus. So God, we say thank you this morning. We ask that you would work in our hearts that we would go to you, not to our own wisdom. That we wouldn't try to fix things, but that we would go to you. So God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross, that we might find forgiveness of sin. We drink this in remembrance of you, and we drink this remembering that you are coming again. And God, right now, maybe that feels like it's going to happen very soon. And so we wait with eager expectation for that day, regardless of when it comes. We thank you for Jesus' blood. Amen. Let's just close our time in prayer together again. God, as we go from this place, may we not just forget the things that we have read and the conviction that you have brought upon our hearts. May we not just allow the busyness of world and the to-do list that we have in front of us to distract us and, and for us to just get on with normal life. But as we read last week in Romans, may, may our minds be transformed. May they be renewed. May everything that comes our way in the coming days and weeks here, that all of it would be filtered through the lens of our faith in you. Give us opportunities to share love and grace and mercy with others. Give us opportunities to speak truth and love. God, help us to be your ambassadors here on the earth so that it doesn't become about my job, the things that I have to accomplish, the tasks that are in front of me, but may it become about you so that people see Christ in us. God, that's our prayer. Go with us this week. We love you. We're so grateful for all that you have done for us. Remind us of our need for you each day. Amen. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you again. Just encourage you to make sure that you register uh, in advance so that we don't uh, have to break any rules or, or get in trouble or anything like that. Um, and of course, if you, uh, if you have any needs, um, do call the church. If, if, you, if you're uncomfortable with those needs and you sometimes don't want to admit those needs, I just want to remind you that we all have needs, every one of us. And so do reach out. We want to help. We want to be part of the solution. We want to be Christian brothers and sisters that care for each other and lift one another up. For those of you who have joined us online, we're happy that you did. Uh, we encourage you uh, in, in your lives, in your hearts, wherever you are, and we just hope that each one of you has a wonderful day. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.